Uh, tonight, we're uh, continuing our study through the books of the Bible. If you're a first time with us, what we have been doing for some time last year and again this year is looking at one book of the Bible each evening. And we're all the way to the letter to the church in Philippi this evening in the New Testament. And so that's where we're going to start tonight. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer and then we'll jump into this. Father God, I just thank you that we are here, that we have this opportunity. We thank you for your word of truth. We thank you, Lord, for not only the guidance and direction and counsel, Lord, but the wisdom that you impart to us through your truth. Just anoint this time that we spend with you and, and just let your word live in our hearts and our minds in a new and a fresh way as a consequence of this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Paul's letter to the Philippians was written by Paul. He tells us that. He says that he and along with Timothy, who at the time of his writing had uh, become Paul's closest companion, uh, in fact, he refers to Timothy as his own son in the faith. Um, <clears throat> but it's interesting, the letter, every, every time I do a book or a letter, I try to find unique aspects of that particular one to hopefully let it hold a fresh place in your mind and your memory and one of the things that really does stand out quite prominently about the letter to the Philippians is it becomes obvious that there was no church to whom Paul ever wrote for whom he felt a greater sense of affection. There's a closeness here, and it's, it's interesting because unlike any of the other letters, not, there's not one note of criticism. He doesn't have any fault with them, but he speaks extensively not only of his affection for them, uh, but also the joy that they bring to him in his life. In fact, in, in chapter 1, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Uh, he says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. The word partnership is that Greek word that you're familiar with, koinonia. Um, in this context, I think the Amplified grasps the meaning pretty well where it says your sympathetic cooperation, your contributions and partnership. Um, and that's what we'll find is one of the key aspects is that these were, this was probably the only church that was consistently financially committed to helping to support Paul's ministry. Uh, but he goes on to say, I have you in my heart. I long for you, all of you, with the affection of Christ Jesus. So that there was such a deep connection and loyalty from Paul to this church and from the church back to Paul again that it really finds that Paul derived not only financial support but a lot of emotional support in the different days of his ministry. In fact, talking about the finances in chapter 4 verse 15, he makes a statement. He says, in the early days, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only which has some, is significant because Paul even talks about this when he wrote back in 2 Corinthians in chapter 8 and 9 where he talks about the, uh, the biblical perspectives on, on money and giving and so forth. He makes reference in the beginning of chapter 8 to what he calls the Macedonian churches. Now, Philippi was the chief city of a region of Macedonia. Today, there is a, in northern part of Greece, there's, there's a country of Macedonia or as they call it, Macedonia. Um, essentially, it's the same region, uh, but we often kind of cobble them all together as being Greece, but <clears throat> just don't do that if you're in Greece or in Macedonia. <laughs> they won't appreciate that. Um, you know, it's kind of like calling somebody from, you know, um, Washington as part of Mexico or something. It would be something that would be nonsensical to them. But anyway, 
He says about the Macedonian churches in 2 Corinthians, says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And so it's interesting. He refers to them as being under severe trial. Uh, in other words, they're going through a lot of persecution because of their faith, and we'll talk more about why. Uh, but that nonetheless, their joy was overflowing, and they had come to extreme poverty in a city which was known for its financial prosperity. So the uh, consequently, what he's telling us is because of their faith, they had been really moved out of the mainstream and were suffering financially because of it. And yet he says, nevertheless, it welled up in rich generosity. In the context of Second Chapter, Second Corinthians chapter eight, he's talking about uh, an offering that was being gathered for the church in Jerusalem, and not even for Paul himself. So it's an interesting picture that he gives to us of these people: joyful, uh, enduring hardships, and yet incredibly generous. The kind of virtues that we all pretty much understand that Christ wants to nurture in our own hearts. But let's talk a little bit about the city of Philippi. It was a city that was really rich historically. Um, it was in the year 356 B.C. Uh, Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great, conquered the region and set up his capital and named the city Philippi after himself. That's, that's what you do, you know, it's good to be king. And he called, he called the city after himself. And uh, it was here that Alexander became king after his father was assassinated, and he launched his invasion from Philippi into, uh, the, against the Persian Empire, which ultimately he conquered. Uh, later on, the city was conquered by the Romans, and it became uh, the site of two major historical battles very closely together. The first was the battle between uh, Octavian, who later became Caesar Augustus, and Mark Antony. They were on one side uh, uh, of, the, of the conflict, and the other side was Cassius and Brutus. Et tu, Brute, you remember from Shakespeare, and uh, maybe you don't remember from Shakespeare, but nonetheless, they had a, a great battle there, and that's where Cassius and Brutus were defeated, and Octavian and Mark Antony divided the Roman king, a republic at that time, into two halves. Antony took the east, including Palestine and, and Asia and, and uh, Egypt and so forth, and Octavian was in Rome. Uh, eventually, <clears throat> they, Octavian and Mark Antony, along with Cleopatra, went to war, and the armies of, of uh, Augustus conquered Antony and Cleopatra, and they, of course, those two committed suicide. And that really marked the beginning, not only of Augustus's reign, but also the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire. So the Senate became really nothing else but a rubber stamp in the Roman Empire, but a pivotal change. But when that battle was ended, we find that Augustus retired or gave many of his soldiers the city of Philippi. And that's why even Paul makes reference to it when he visits there. He says in Romans 16, 12, that it was a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. So being a Roman colony meant essentially that it was like a slice of Rome that had been transplanted into Macedonia. So that the people there dressed like Romans, they spoke Latin and not Greek, which is the predominant surrounding language. Everything about the city was, was extremely Roman, very important, very powerful, that part, especially because where it was located. 
It was located on what's called the Via Ignatia, which was the, one of the main east-west highways that connected Asia with Europe and particularly with Rome. And they were right in the center of that, both by sea and by land. So it meant that they really benefited from their geographical location and became uh, increasingly wealthy. And that's where Paul plants the first European church. So Philippi is notable. It's the first European church that was ever established and began the legacy of European Christianity. But to really kind of put the story into maybe a more complete context, we really have to kind of go back 10 years before Paul writes this letter. And it's interesting because what happened 10 years before? Well, Paul and Barnabas had decided that they were going to start their second missionary journey, which is essentially designed to plant churches. And they were going to first revisit the churches of Derby, Lystra, and Iconium that they had planted in the area of Asia Minor. And if you recall, Paul and Barnabas got into a very intense controversy, so much so that they decided they couldn't work together any longer. And we don't know who was at fault. Uh, people pick sides even today, but I just think they're, you know, the typical apostles behaving badly type of situation. Uh, their humanity kind of comes out in all of this. And so Paul leaves with Silas. When he gets to the city of Lystra, he basically takes Timothy into his entourage and they set out probably for the city of Ephesus. Ephesus would have been the major place to evangelize. Uh, contrary to many people's assumption, Paul targeted large metropolitan areas. He wasn't a guy who was a country preacher. He went to preach where the most people would be at any given time. And so his churches were always planted in major uh, metropolitan areas. And Ephesus would have been the most significant city. And it makes complete sense that he would have headed there. But that didn't work out. In fact, you know, sometimes we think about men like Paul that they're just by kind of like divinely directed and they're kind of like automatic pilot and their Holy Spirit just kind of grabs them by the nape of the neck and they know exactly where they're going and what they're supposed to be doing. But we find that Paul, in fact, really became quite perplexed. It says in Acts 16, beginning verse 6, he says, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia, which is where Ephesus was. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. And so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. And the reason we would say they went to Troas is basically they walked until they hit water and there was no place left to walk. They ran out of, ran out of terra firma and they get to really the, the edge of the water and there they are. And uh, I think Paul was probably at this point quite, quite mystified as to what was going on. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then it says, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they literally got on ships and sailed across the Aegean Sea to ending up eventually in the city of Philippi. And when they reach there, they have initially they have tremendous success, particularly we read about the seller of purple cloth, which was a very high-end commodity in the world that day. And a, a woman by the name of Lydia, and she is one of their first con converts. And things are going really well. 
And then they are arrested, beaten, and imprisoned. In fact, he tells us in verse 20 of chapter 16 in Acts what the charges were. It says, quote, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. You have to understand that ancient cities were often organized around uh, certain temples of the gods of Rome, uh, people like Jupiter and others. And the idea was that if you're a good citizen, you will worship these gods because that's the way the, the blessing of the gods will come upon our city. To teach any religious principles that varied from that was in their mind to put the whole community at risk and in danger of angering the gods. And then, you know, terrible things happen, like your insurance writer talks about acts of nature or acts of God, you know, rain, storms, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, you know, things happen, earthquakes. They were always attributed to, to having done something that offended the gods. And so people like Paul coming in and teaching a, a, a strange religious concept. Not only is he a Jew, but he has a particular slant to Judaism that they'd never heard before. And as a consequence, they arrested them for basically disturbing the public peace and being a threat to the city. Well, the next day we find that they are released after having led the jailer to Christ. Classic statement acts, you and your house, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your house will be saved. And then it says the jailer told Paul the next morning, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison, and now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. Now, why would they be alarmed? Because Roman law said that if a magistrate punished a citizen without due uh, course, uh, without uh, due process, uh, that whatever he did to that person would be done to him. So literally, these guys were in danger. If word got back to Rome what they had done, they would be thrown in prison, they would be beaten, and they would have to go through all the things that Paul and Silas had to suffer. And so they said they came to appease them and escorted them from the prison and requesting them to leave the city. <laughs> now they're not ordering them, please leave, <laughs> please leave, <laughs> just please. And after Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them, and then they left. Now Paul wasn't just being, you know, gnarly. It wasn't like he was being real snarky and how dare you treat me this way. Keep in mind, he had just planted a church. These people are new in the faith. And he isn't going to just kind of disappear. He's going to go back and do what he can to really maintain that connection and, and establish the church. And it appears from the record that, especially this letter to the Philippians, that Paul stayed very close with the Philippians throughout his ministry, which is why one of these letters that he writes from prison in Rome is being addressed to them. And what he really warns them about uh, in my, my way of expressing it, just simply warned him about the joy stealers, things that steal your joy. In fact, one of the things we'll see is this is the theme. Joy is the theme of the letter to the Philippians. And the kind of things that steal your joy, for example, are, are opposition and persecution. Anybody have a question about that? <laughs> you know, uh, it's, you know, somebody doesn't like you, it, it tends to make you less happy than you were before. But he tells them in, in, in verse chapter 1, verse 29, he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, 
not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. Since you were going through the same struggles you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Well, remember, they saw him thrown into prison, beaten, <laughs> and threatened with death. He gets out, and now here he is back in prison again. Now, keep in mind, we have no idea how many times Paul was imprisoned, but we're pretty certain it was far more than the number we have recorded in his letters. When we go back to 2 Corinthians, remember he talks about his hardships and we recognize that his sufferings for Christ were numerous and, 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 and regular. Paul would never have fallen into the deception that if you're a Christian then you never suffer difficulties anymore. Um, he suffered on a regular basis and he said this is part of the badge of honor, if you will, that we are granted to wear for Christ's sake. That's why later on in chapter 4, and he begins the chapter there by saying, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. This idea of not being moved, standing firm in the face of the adversity that you are going through. I think that as long as we think that uh, as Peter would warn, he says, we, when we go through fiery trials, he says, you shouldn't act as if something strange, uh, out of the ordinary, something that isn't right is taking place in your life. He said, this is part and parcel of the, of the walk with God. I would love to stand here tonight and say to you, you know, I remember when I used to struggle with this, but now I've got this figured out. Um, I have great hindsight. I've got very poor foresight. <laughs> you know, so I can look back on things and go, oh, I see what God was doing. It makes sense. I, I realize why he took me through that season of my life. But the next time I come to a difficulty, a struggle, or a painful thing in my life, I tend to have to relearn that all over again. So I don't want to make you feel bad or give you the impression that I've got this wired. I'm reading it just like you are. But nonetheless... That's what the Word of God does. It tells us that we can understand the challenges that we go through as Christians as the hand of God at work in our lives, that it's not a strange, it's not uh, something that shouldn't be there. And the objective isn't to simply say, how can I figure out how I can make all my problems go away and live happily ever after? It's, Paul put it, you know, as he wrote uh, in Corinthians, he says, I, you know, and, and here again in Philippians, he says it, I die every day. I die every day. And so it's, it's, it's the reality that the outward man, Paul said to the Corinthians, is dying daily, but the inward man is being renewed hourly. And so there's this deeper work of God that takes place as we go through the external difficulties. The second thing that is really a joy stealer is division and disunity. And as we've touched on, this is thematic through almost every letter that Paul uh, writes, as I shared last week. It's not so much just the problem in the church, it's the problem of humanity. Uh, we can go through our, we're going through entering into this wondrous political season, which seems to never end anymore, but you just see the divisiveness and the disharmony and all this stuff, and it, it really is disappointing, you know, in many ways, but that's the nature of, 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 of humanity, of mankind. And but what is, was troubling is that as a church, we have the power to live beyond that. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 2, he makes this exhortation to them. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. And Paul doesn't go into much detail about there being divisive problems. He, makes, he has actually just one comment that he makes towards the end of the letter where he says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche 
to agree with each other in the Lord. <laughs> Apparently there was quite a conflict going on. What I find interesting, and this isn't really directly related, but what I find interesting in this letter is there's reference to three very strong women who were very influential in church. We have Lydia, who the church met in her house. We have also Satiki and Euodia, who were very strong female roles in that church and tremendously influential over the life of the uh, Philippian congregation. So he, those are his first two concerns. One is you're going to go through persecution opposition, and we tend to lose our joy when life gets hard. Secondly, when people come divided and they begin to, as Paul said to the Galatians, we bite, we devour, we consume each other, that's a joy stealer as well. The third one is false teachers. And <clears throat> he doesn't tell us a great deal about them, but in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, beware of dogs. Now, he's not talking about the canines that might be in the street, but he says, beware of evil workers, beware of the maimcision. Uh, maimcision is a play on words. Circumcision was the Jewish rite of cutting away the foreskin in order to be as a symbol of being part of the Jewish nation. Uh, maimcision is basically saying when they do that, it's really nothing else but maiming themselves. In fact, the Galatians, he said, these, were, these people are insisting that you have to be circumcised to be saved. He says, I wish they would go all the way. And basically, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I won't, you, you got the picture. I won't go any further. But, <clears throat> but it's really was, it, you can see that Paul was really exercised by this issue frequently because he, as he said over and over again, these people are stealing your liberty, they're stealing your joy, and that's a critical issue. Why is it an issue? Because remember what Nehemiah wrote to us in chapter 8 of his book, chapter 10, verse 10, when he said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? When you're really joyful about something, don't you have a higher level of energy about everything than when you are really, say, on the opposite extreme when you're deeply depressed? I know that when I get depressed, you know, I mean, I just want to lay in bed and bury my head under the pillow and you know, woe is me, I think I'll eat a can of worms. You know, it's just this really, you just feel like you can't hardly lift your arms to move the spoon to your lips. But when you got joy, man, you can, you can have had the hardest day of your life and you just bring it on, I'm ready for it. And that's, that's just a simple uh, physiological reality. That's, that's biology in, in operating, you know. But it's not something that finds its root in our uh, hormones or our anatomy or our adrenaline glands or in our epinephrine or anything else, it has its root in how we view our circumstances. The mind controls how, what chemicals pump through your body. And this is why Paul says, you know, this is critically important. In fact, 21 times in this letter, Paul uses the word joy or one of its uh, derivatives, it's much clearer, more derivative in the Greek, of uh, rejoice and rejoice with. The word joy, rejoice, and rejoice with, they're three different words that appear throughout this letter. They're essentially the same root word throughout. And it's important that he really is trying to make a distinction for us as well between happiness and joyfulness. You know what the difference is. I'm happy when circumstances are unfolding the way I had planned or expected or would like them to work out. <coughs> Excuse me. So when you plan your family vacation or whatever it is, if you don't have a family, you plan your 
personal vacation, you have it sketched out in your mind usually, and you think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the Hawaiian Islands, and I'm going to have a typical Blue Hawaii Elvis experience, you know. It's going to be beautiful palm trees, and all these wonderful things are going to happen. It reminds me of a, a single friend of mine one time who had planned out his trip to Hawaii, and, and his, his biggest downfall was that he didn't like to spend money at all. The only guy I ever know, when we went out of town, he unplugged the wall clocks and also turned off the refrigerator and wouldn't open the door except at the refrigerator because he said, you realize every time you open the refrigerator door, it costs you 25 cents. <laughs> and I said to him, now I know why you're not married. But, <laughs> but uh, so he, he made all these plans. He got, got called to church over there and let him stay with a guy. And he had it all planned out. He was going to go to Hawaii and spend no, no money and have a wonderful time. Uh, right after he got there, he found out that the gentleman he was staying with was suffering from extreme PTSD and, and kept him awake all night. He came down with strep throat and he spent an entire vacation in bed because he didn't want to spend money for a doctor. And so as a result, when he got home from his vacation, and you know, I asked him, how was it? <laughs> it was the most miserable experience of my entire life, you know? And I thought, it's kind of an extreme example, but I just remember that we used to fall into this, it's it's an oxymoron, we used to talk about family vacations. If you take your family somewhere, especially their small kids, there's no vacation for you. (laughs) You're just going to work harder because the conveniences and the schedule are all upside down. Life is often like that. We, we, we have the right, according to our, our, our constitution, to the pursuit of happiness, but there's no guarantee and no, actually no real likelihood that you'll ever find it. I love what Mark Cuban said about the Powerball when it got, was getting up to $1.5 billion and they, they interviewed him, himself being a billionaire. He said, you know, if you're not happy before you win it, you won't be happy after you win it. <laughs> and I thought, that's pretty insightful. But the reality is because we, when we look for happiness in our circumstances, I'll marry the right person, I'll have the right kind of kids, you know, I'll have the right kind of career, and I'll, you know, the chances are not really on your side that you're going to get even two out of three, maybe not even one out of three. That life is not something that, happiness is not something that rolls into your life because the circumstances have militated together to ensure that you are. And I say that, which may seem like obvious to some of you, but there are just a lot of people I talk to who believe that happiness is, is something that's owed to them and they just you know, need to keep on breathing long enough for it to overtake them like some kind of emotional tsunami. And it just doesn't work that way. And so most people go through most of their life pursuing after something to make them happy or someone to make them happy and invariably end up disappointed by the consequences of that. Contrast that with joy. Joy is, is really an inner quality. It's, it's a delighting in God that really springs from within the Christian by virtue of the Spirit where we are, and it's totally unrelated to my circumstance. And this becomes Paul's whole argument. That joy is something that you are given by God, even though the circumstances might militate against it. In fact, part of the testimony of the believer is when we have joy, when the rest of the world looks at us and says, you shouldn't. That's why Paul makes this statement when he talks about having the peace that passes understanding. In other words, when I have a peace, which is the prerequisite for joy, if you have no peace in your heart, you're not going to have joy in your head. 
So, but when I have this peace with God in my heart and it manifests self and joy, it doesn't really add up to the world around you. People will wonder, why are you so happy? I remember my mother saying to me one time, I says, you guys go through all these kind of difficult situations. I don't understand why you're not depressed or discouraged by that. And, you know, to me, I didn't think I was being that great a witness. <laughs> to me, in my, inside my own head, I'm thinking, I'm just hanging on around long enough to survive. Uh, you know, but, but from where she was staying, it's, you know, saying, I just see so many people hit these walls and they just give up and fall apart. Well, I, I think as I thought about it, the answer is really kind of simple. I do absolutely believe that my life is not determined by outside circumstances. That, you know, my success in Christ is not predicated upon everything going the way that I think it should be. In fact, everything can go completely upside down and inside out and fall apart and break up. And I know that I have been more, as Paul said to the Romans, more than a conqueror. And it, 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 there may be no evidence of that for other people to look at and saying, well, I can see that you're successful. No, it's just something that I know that when I ask Jesus into my heart, I won the only lottery that ever matters. You know, that was Jesus. I mean, that, everything else, nothing else matters. In the, in the bigger picture of things, oh yeah, if I go out and my car won't start, that will matter to me tonight for a while. But in the bigger scheme of things, those are just blips on the radar of life. They are not the thing that determines the course or the consequence of your life. And this is what Paul is really trying to drive home to, his, to the Philippians believer, and I think he wants us to really grasp that he offers us joy. In spite of the circumstances, he offers us joy. And joy is not always this giddy, bubbling thing. Happiness can be giddy. Joy is not necessarily giddy. Sometimes joy is kind of chill. But it's this sense of, of completeness. It's a sense of fulfillment. It's a sense that it is, as the song says, it is well with my soul. It's the concept, I love it in Chariots of Fire when Eric Little is asked by his sister, why do you run? And he says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. And it's this idea that you just, despite circumstances, you sense that the pleasure of God is upon your life. That, that it's what Jesus said the Father would say to you and me one day when we're standing before his presence in eternity, and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So that regardless of what you and I go through down here, that is a conversation that is ordained already by God from before eternity with your name on it where you're going to stand before the God of the universe and he's going to look at you and say, say he's not going to look at you and go, so, how's your prayer life? <laughs> so, did you ever finish reading the Gospels? <laughs> you know, we often think that this is going to be kind of, kind of a report card and evaluation and interrogation you know, that we're going to go through. It's going to be the Inquisition in heaven. no. It's the Father looking at it, just going, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. And I can just imagine what that moment's like. We will, our eyes will be open to <laughs> the doors of heaven open, and we'll just go, well, if we have breath, we'll be breathless. 
<laughs> That's all I could say. I don't even know what kind of physiological dynamic exists, but we're, gonna, we're just going to, you know, probably gasp. And I think for the first half of eternity, we're just going to be going, oh, wow. It's just going to sound like a gathering of hippies, you know? Oh, wow. Far off. You know, because we're just going to be overwhelmed. And, that's, and the reason I say that is because when I read Revelations 4 and 5 and it talks about those who appear before the throne of God and they worship God day and night saying, holy, 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 holy. Well, in Greek, the word holy is wow. <laughs> Not really. But anyway, <laughs> but it's the concept that one becomes so impacted by something that it goes beyond even the, the, the sensory perceptions of this new heavenly body that God gives us. So that um, literally I think that, that it's going to be like water coursing through the cells of our body with heavenly glory and grace and joy. And um, so Paul said, when, when I look at my life in this world, and he says these, these troubles which are but for a moment, and then I compare them with the glory that's going to be revealed, his, it, it changes his attitude. And so much of what Paul talks about, and we'll get to this at the end of chapter 4, it's about what is that attitude that you go through life with. Well, saying all of that, let me just run through the outline fairly quickly. I break the four chapters into four simple parts, uh, each one starting with the word joy. In chapter 1 is joy in living for Christ. Paul says to them regarding his current circumstances in, in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, what has happened to me has really served to the advance of the gospel. And then he goes on, he says, in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice, because and yes, and I will continue to rejoice, as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So Paul begins by saying, yeah, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of unfriendly things are going on in my life. A lot of pain, a lot of difficulty, a lot of hardship. But you know what? The thing I know is that Christ is being preached, and I'm rejoicing because I have made that <coughs> the singular objective of my life. Let's take a moment to take a cough drop here. Thank you. <clears throat> then in chapter 2, he talks about not just simply joy in living for Christ, but the joy that comes in serving Christ, especially to serve Christ with what we call Christ-like humility. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says that he called them to be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. To do nothing, he says, out of selfish ambition or, or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. We back on? Okay. And he goes on and says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he explains what that attitude is. He says, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God to be something to be grasped or to be grasped after but made himself nothing. So he says he has this perfect oneness and equality with God, and yet he was willing to become nothing, even though he was in fact everything. And taking the very nature of a servant, literally a slave, being made in human likeness. And you know, we, we glory in human likeness, 
God had to step way down to enter into our likeness. And he humbled himself, which again is, my mind kind of gets stuck there because thinking about God who has no reason to humble himself would humble himself so that it really removes from me any excuse for not humbling myself. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to the death of the cross, which was the most humiliating of deaths. And then verse 12, he goes on, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining and arguing. Sometimes that continue to work out your salvation has been interpreted by some to saying, see, you have to earn your salvation or get yourself saved. Nothing could be more uh, antithetical to what Paul was trying to say. What he's really essentially saying is work at your walk with God. Don't just let it slack off, but be earnest about it because God has a will and a purpose for you. And then he goes on in the chapter to give us examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, uh, two very commendable men of God. But then in chapter 3, he, he moves on to the joy of knowing Christ. Uh, and part of it is to beware of those who would rob your joy by bad theology and, and, and bad information. He says, again, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship God by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We don't put any confidence. In other words, the legalist is putting confidence in his own fleshly ability to keep the law of God well enough to, be sa to save himself through his own efforts. He says, we don't have any confidence in ourselves. I don't have any confidence to be sinless or to be faithful in the things of God. I put my confidence in Christ to save me, not in my own self. And he goes on verse 18, he says, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. In other words, their, the shamefulness of their own flesh, their mind is on earthly things. But he contrasts that to the true knowledge that brings joy when he says in verse 10, chapter 3, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so how, somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And he goes on to say, it's, this is the thing that I'm pressing on to. Literally, the word in this context refers to, you might think of a runner who is racing and pushing himself to get across the finish line. It's my earnest endeavor to, to do this. But these things that he says, these are central. I want to know, know Christ. I want to know him. And it's, this, it's epigenosis. It's this experiential, experiential knowledge. I don't want to just have theory. I want to experience Christ in my life. And I, I want to know that power, the very power that raised him from the dead. I want that power in my life and operating out of my life. That I want to know the fellowship that comes from sharing in his suffering. In other words, when I suffer in my life, I gain insights into the nature of God and the person of Jesus that brings me into a companionship. Again, this word koinonia, a participation with him in, the, in his ministry and his work. Uh, and, uh, and then fourthly, to become like him in his death, to die in the same way that he died in the will of the Father. I mean, it's, a, it's a, such a powerful statement, and we, we tend to, again, know these passages. We, we tend to quote them and rattle them off really quickly. 
but the profundity of what he's saying, because in the end of that, he, he just simply says, because our citizenship is in heaven. So he's speaking to a people whose one of the highest points of pride is the fact that they are citizens of Rome. This was not something that everybody had. You were, it was the special, you know, the one in ten who was a citizen of Rome with all of its rights and privileges and prestige. And he says, but even though I'm a citizen of Rome, what I take pride in is not that. I take pride in my citizenship in heaven. That's my, my true identity. And this is really the struggle, I think, for most of us as followers of Jesus, is where are we going to drive our sense of our own identity and our own worth? What is the source of your significance? Is it your height, your width, your length, your depth? Is it what you see in the mirror or what you think you look like when you don't look in the mirror? I mean, it's, it's what is the thing that becomes the defining? Is it your intellect, your career, your, your income, your resources? That We find something and we just say, this is who I am. He's saying, I have discovered that the only identity that really matters is who I am in Jesus. Who does God know to me to be? Which brings us to chapter 4 and uh, I would say joy simply in resting in Christ. Um, I dare use this term. Paul talks about learning mind control. That's a hot topic. I would like to use terms like that because it gets, what, 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 what? Those of you who are sleeping up to now, suddenly, hey, heresy. <laughs> okay, mind control. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Hey, that's simple. How are you doing with that? <laughs> Obviously, he's, you and I look at the same thing. Well, I know I'm supposed to rejoice in the Lord always, but I really, the truth is, I rejoice in the Lord occasionally. And I think I'll, I'll rewrite that. <laughs> but that's not what he said. He's saying essentially that we have the potential to be rejoicing, to be joyful in our life at all times and all circumstances. And, and when we aren't, we need to be asking ourselves a question, so what did I, where did I get off track? And he answers it, it says. He says, I'll say it again, just in case you weren't listening to me. Rejoice. And then he says, do not be anxious about anything. Now, most of our joy leaves when we become anxious <laughs> about something. We start stressing about something in our life. And I love these <laughs> commands. Don't do that. You ever had somebody come up to you saying, you're just really going through a hard time saying, you just need to stop worrying about that. You know, I just feel like saying, Oh, shut up. <laughs> In Jesus' name, I'm going to beat you to death right now. Because, I mean, it's like, don't I know this? I know this, but I'm having trouble disconnecting. Well, it is retraining ourselves to think, after, think God's thoughts after him. So how do I do that? In everything, number one, by prayer and petition. The first, thing, the first step towards a joyful life is to become a man or woman who instinctively responds to situations with prayer. Problem comes up, problems are designed for prayer. Our tendency is the first thing, I'm going to step out and I'm going to fix this. Well, I'm going to tell them what I think about that. <laughs> you know, and it, it, we usually end up having to have somebody come and pray for us after that, right? Because we really got deeply into it. Well, really, honey, I, these handcuffs, I have no idea. <laughs> No, he says, learning to be first men and women of prayer. Our first response is prayer, not our last resort, okay? The secondly, he says, with thanksgiving. I was sharing with somebody who's going through a difficult time for a very long time, and I said, you know, one of the things I found is every time I pray, I just start thanking God first and foremost for anything I can think of. 
And sometimes I have to think really hard. <laughs> but thank you, Jesus, for those Cheerios. <laughs> thank you for the milk that goes in those Cheerios. <laughs> you know, I mean, some people may think, you know, that's not very spiritual. But sometimes I just have to start with what I can say, <laughs> I can affirm honestly. And you start thanking God, and you get in the habit, and you begin to realize, Lord, I thank you that my sins have been forgiven. I thank you that I have people in my life who love me and that I have people in my life that I can love. I thank you. And you start finding stuff that you can thank God for all around you. Just the very fact that you're sucking air is something to be thankful for. Oh, I know some of us might say, well, I don't care if I live and die. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> Let me hold your nose in your mouth for a while. And we'll see whether you care whether you live or die, okay? But to be thankful. And, and he goes... And he goes on and says, and then you'll find the peace of God that transcends all of our understanding will become a guard to your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And then he says, thirdly, to, to think rightly. He says, put it this way, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. When I started trying to really apply that, I found that there was a whole lot of things that I thought about that were off the list. And it really did narrow down. I, I began to think, what is true? God's word is true. Not the thoughts in my head at this moment are not true. But what God's word is true. I'm going to think about what his word says. I'm going to think about those things that are, are noble so that <clears throat> when we get vengeful or resentful, those are not noble thoughts. We know that. But when we think about loving and forgiving, those are noble things. And you start going through that list, it's amazing how it focuses your thinking. And then he says, fourthly, put it into practice. Just don't know that it's the right thing, but actually actively work upon making a difference. And then he says, and the God of peace will be with you. When I first discovered this, I was just a, I remember a young believer in the Lord, and I was quite honestly, I was sitting there talking to God, and I read this, rejoice in the Lord always, and I said, God, I can't remember the last time I had joy in my life. I remember when I asked Jesus in my heart, I had joy. And I remember a short time after that, I had joy. But somewhere along the line, being a soldier for Jesus and working hard and proving that I was worthy to be on the team had robbed me of all my joy and all of my peace. And the more I began to re re read the Bible and realize what I'm not supposed to do and what I am supposed to do, the more I realized I'm falling short of that righteousness. And God, I just found myself beginning to become very depressed. And I didn't have joy. I didn't have joy. I didn't go and share the gospel. I gave it to people. I mean, I gave it to them. <laughs> and uh, I, I knew more about hell than I did about heaven. And I remember sitting there saying, God, I don't have joy in my life. And the Lord opened that whole passage up to me and said, if you want joy, just do these things. Just do this. Sit down and start being, becoming a man of prayer, becoming a man who... who thinks things that are good and true and noble and, and, and so forth. Be thankful. Begin to praise me and thank me for what I've done for you. And, and do it. Just do it mechanically. I was trying to explain this to somebody. He says, even though you don't feel thankful, doesn't mean you can't thank God. Well, I don't feel like sincere. Well, it's not. <laughs> but it'll work. Trust me. Just start thanking him because he's worthy of it, isn't he? Yeah, well, then thank him. And suddenly you'll find that your heart will start to th follow him. So, something that every one of us wants. 
And all I want was just a few more minutes, but I don't have it. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would help us to grasp in our hearts and minds this whole concept of your joy that you offer to us when we trust you. To, Lord, just to be able to really enter into a joyfulness in our life, not to be overwhelmed, but to be really upheld by your grace. And we just ask, God, that I just pray, Lord, that uh, my brothers and sisters here will just be motivated saying, I need to read that for myself. And that you'd speak to them, Lord, with a more profound message than I could ever deliver. Pray, God, for your grace in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you.